Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, hello. Once again, I'm Lana Reed, and welcome back to another week of Don't Box Me In. You know, all the time you hear people say this um how you start is not how you have to finish. And while it sounds good, when you're going through your own personal storm, rarely are you in a mental place to receive this message. But hopefully my guest today and his life story will allow some of us to understand with more clarity that it is truly a reality. That how you start your journey in this life is definitely not how you have to finish it. You can make some changes, turn the steering wheel in a different direction. And Dean uh, Roberts is truly an example of that. Uh, Dean Roberts dropped out of high school at the age of 16 and later went on to build a multi-million dollar business. He's here today to share his story, his insight, his inspiration. And I'm so glad to have him here today and welcome him to the show. Dean, welcome to Don't Box Me In. Hi, Lada. Hey, 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 glad, glad you made time to hang out with me today. You're over there in uh, New York, correct? Well, right now I'm in uh, Silver City, New Mexico. Okay. We have a a motorhome that we've been traveling for the last month. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that later. You're just kind of just roaming around, and that must be fun in itself. But, uh, yeah, so we're going to kind of get to that. That's kind of a neat little lifestyle there. But let's, let's back up and start way, way back in the beginning there, you know, probably about 10 years ago, because you're not that old, right? <laughs> I'm 75. Awesome. i got a uh, lot of years ahead of me, hopefully. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. I can tell by reading your book. Yeah, you got a lot more to go, a lot more stuff to get into. Um, but in your book... Um, it starts off in 1939, and I want to quote you. You say, I moved in with two well-meaning idiots. They taught me what they had been taught, some of which turned out to be very useful. And we're going to assume that you're talking about your parents, right? Yep. Yeah. Can you kind of well-meaning. <laughs> well-meaning. Uh, explain to us yeah. about your parents. How? What were they like? They, um, my mother was manic depressive and my father was a great guy, but he was busy working all the time. Okay. So I guess, was it just you in the house or did you have brothers and sisters? Nope, I was lucky enough to be an only child. Oh, it's not so bad. I'm an only child too. I mean, you know. <laughs> no, I like it. Yeah, I, I, my mother says I never ever asked for any siblings, but I guess when you're in a household and you're dealing with a mother, like you said, and your dad that's kind of not around all the time, it can kind of be overwhelming. Um, you, you had a very, uh, were you, a, were a bad kid to say? Is, is it, what was the labels that people like to put on, uh, Dean back in the day? Well, very experimental anyway. I started to drink and smoke cigarettes around the age of 12. And uh, I never really had a lot of interest in school. I did I did poorly on my grades, and uh, and as soon as I got to be thirteen or fourteen, I used to go on the hook a lot. Okay, okay. So by, so, by age by age six. Oh, excuse me. Go ahead. No, you're you're fine, dear. You're we're gonna have a lot of time to do the back and forth thing. You're fine. Um, so you said by fifteen you were you were on your way out the door of school. Well, sixteen actually. They asked me to leave. Okay, and this is where I was reading in your book, um, you say your parents sent you to a place called the Indoctrination Center. So I'm assuming that this is what you're calling the public education system, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, and and why did you so fondly name it that? 
because I, I feel that I uh, didn't learn a whole lot and that it was mostly about um, regimentation and doing what you're told, and I was mm-hmm. never good at that. Oh, never good at doing what you're told. Okay, a rebel off the gate. Do you think, I mean, in hindsight, there there would have been some more suitable education system that you would have fit into? I, I, I maybe a Steiner school or uh, I don't know. You know, I, I feel that education is probably the most important aspect of anyone's life. But uh, and to learn to be a student is something that the public system didn't do for me. Mhm, mhm. Was it maybe the teachers just didn't? I mean, you know, and and I, I will say to your credit, you know, the public system, a school system, is such a thing where you want every student to come in, you know, sit at their tables for you know their chair for eight hours a day and pay attention to somebody standing in front of them and yada yada blah 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 blah. And you know, it's not a design for every individual. Um, and and that's kind of been the downfall in a lot of cases for a lot of different individuals. But um. I mean, I think there probably was a system somewhere that would have worked for me, but I, much later in life, I think I found out that I was dyslexic because oh, okay. I had uh, a lot of trouble learning to read. I re- didn't really know how to read very well till I was in my twenties. Okay, okay, okay. Now you, you you mentioned earlier that your mother was manic depressive, so I'm pretty sure it was much more of a struggle for her dealing with her own issues, which I'm not sure if she was diagnosed really, and then having a son who was kind of, you know, not doing his best in school or something like you, you just, you just, you just must have gave her a run for her money. Yeah, she, um, um, she had a hard enough time with her own life. She was, I used to get catatonic, and <laughs> every every winter, my father would have to take her for a whole series of electric shock therapy. And it was, she came back looking like he dragged her behind the car. It mm. was, um, uh, you know, and I didn't understand what was going on. I Somehow I, maybe I blamed myself for her getting like that or, because I was, you know, I wasn't easy to get along with. So I, then when she'd get like that, I was thinking maybe I did it to her. But mm-hmm. I found out later on in life she, she had a very serious chemical imbalance and they straightened it out there a long time after that. Okay. When you say you weren't easy to get along with, Dean, what 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 were you doing? Oh, uh, like well, I said I, we were. I would come home drunk at twelve and puke mm-hmm. over the bedroom. Uh, it, you know, not come home or she just worried to death. I wouldn't show up for until uh, midnight or something. You know, it was. We used to for recreation. Even when I was thirteen, we would ride on top of the elevator trains <laughs> while we were drunk. It was it was frightening. If she knew all of the stuff I was doing, she probably would have died from uh, her, her illness. And I'm pretty sure now in your 70s, you're just like, it is amazing that I am here today, all of the dumb stuff I used to do, uh-huh. right? <laughs> only, by the hand of, only by the hand of God, you know. There you go. By the grace of God, I'm here. Oh, wow. I mean, just amazing. So 16, let's go to 16, and you just say, you know what, uh, mom and dad, you know, this high, this school thing, you know, I'm really not feeling it. It's not for me. And they they just say, okay. I mean, how, how does that go? Well, the way it came down, actually, my, the uh, I was on the hook for two weeks, and I, the dean of boys wouldn't let me back into school. So, um, I, yes, I had to go. I had to bring my mother in, and he told her he didn't want me there anymore. He says, is it, my education is complete as far as he's concerned. So, uh, so that was it. I started hanging around down the candy store, and um, uh, then as soon as I was old enough, I joined the Navy. 
Okay. Now, I'm not sure if during that time, but I know today, you know, for kids who the traditional public education system is not good uh, for them or not working for them, um, there are these certain continuation schools, different extension schools to get them to at least graduate. That was not even a consideration. They just were like, we're just going to let him stop and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, basically, because they had... By that time, I was just coming and going on my own schedule, so they were kind enough to provide me with a place to sleep and something to eat, but <laughs> they, they, they really weren't involved in my schedule very much at all. <laughs> they just threw their hands up, like, we have done what we could, you know, it's whatever at yeah. this point. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. So... You, you mentioned, so you go into the service at 18, but that time period from 16 to 18, two years is a long time. What, you know, you're just, I'm, you're just hanging out? I'm not sure. Yeah, I was hanging out. Um, I'm not sure that that was two years, though. I, I think that with parents' permission, I could go in when I was 17 then. Okay. I should really check that. Okay. I don't know if it was 17 or 18. I was going to say, you know, that's a... Ter- that's a long time for a parent to put up with, you know, so oh, I'm just coming when I want to come and, you know, I'll eat what I want to eat and, you know, uh, you know, that's a long period of time to put up with that kind of behavior and, and especially, well, did you tell them like, okay, this is my plan. I know I'm kind of, you know, screwing up now, no, but I, had I, had no, ha- no, oh, I, I had no plan at all, <laughs> but I did spend some of that time on my grandfather's farm upstate New York because from the time I was very small till I went in the Navy, I would spend this full summer on his farm and that's probably the only thing that kept me alive because mm-hmm. they were very he was a very positive influence and I learned a lot of things about life from mm-hmm. being up there yeah I was reading through your book and you you know you talk very fondly about your time uh, up there with your grandfather um, what what did what did you take away from your your time with him your that learning experience there well um Kindness and community. He was very community-minded. He knew everybody on the road, and every night that we'd sit on the porch, and somebody would stop, and they'd sit there and drink wine and smoke their pipes. Mm-hmm. And uh, they played music. They would have him and his brother uh, had square dances quite often. We'd take all the furniture out of the living room, and a whole lot of people would come over. It was a whole difference. I lived in Brooklyn. I mean, it was a war zone. There were gang fights and razor wire, and uh, mm-hmm. in those days, it wasn't a good place to live. Mm-hmm. Wow. So and that it, influence was kind of uh, helped me see another side of life. Okay. And he was he was still in New York. But where was he at again? It's near Cooperstown, New York. He was on a 180-acre dairy farm that my my mother's family settled in 1800. Okay. So they had long roots going back into that soil. So you're you're out there um, when you're with your grandfather. You're doing the whole livestock, the chickens and the cows and all of that stuff. Yep, fishing and hunting and uh, all the things. He never had a tractor. He farmed with horses up until 1952. So I learned how to drive a, a team of horses and uh, a whole variety of different things that were absolutely useless to me the rest of my life. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, coming back to Brooklyn as a city boy is like, okay, this really does me no good. <laughs> No good, but <laughs> but the experience, you know, like I said, the experience, um, you know, the valuable yep. lessons that you learn, you know, working with your hands, not having some of the conveniences that city life does offer us, you know, just kind of going back to how things should be originally were, you know, it, it kind of gives you a whole different yep. mindset. So, you know, I, I can appreciate uh, 
you know, some of the things that you learned on while you were with your grandfather. So your parents eventually signed for you to go to the Navy. Is that what you re- remember? Or I, 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 Yep. Yeah, they definitely were. They were in full support of it. They thought it was a great idea. <laughs> Say, just do it. Just something. Get out of here. <laughs> do anything. Right. So, how did do you remember how the idea came into your head? You know, I'm I'm going to go into the Navy. Um, a son of yours that lived the fellow lived across the street from me told me he's going into the Navy, and he says they got this buddy system. If we sign up together, we can stay together. And I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Let's go. So there was absolutely no forethought on that at all. <laughs> Tell you, youngsters, the young mentality. Yeah, sure, pro- no problem. You know, buddy system, I've got a friend. <laughs> yeah, it's only four years, you know. Only four years, what? Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and it actually turned out to be worse than the correctional, the uh, indoctrination center that they I, I I was going to say, you know, going into the military is not for the faint of heart. Um, that, that whole boot camp dynamic for somebody such as yourself who was already, you know, bucking the system, I can see the potential for quite a few personality clashes. Actually, that part worked pretty good because you absolutely, there's no question. You did what you were told. They had absolute total authority over me. I had, I never questioned anything that they gave me. Uh, it was after boot camp that I, that at the, uh, because when you started getting some freedom of action again, and they had, uh, uh, the EM club, you know, I used to get $78 a month, and the drafts were only 10 cents, so I could, uh, uh, life got a lot better immediately. <laughs> like to drink a little bit. Okay. Uh, Dean, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about your uh, first few years in the Navy there. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello. Today I am hanging out with Mr. Dean Roberts. He's the author of the book, I'll Fix My Head Before I'm Dead. And before the break, we were uh, talking about the beginning of his uh, time with the Navy there, and uh, 18 years old in the service. And you said the boot camp process was not so bad, but it was when they gave you a little freedom to move around. And I think you said $78 a month. Is that what you were making? Yep. $78. Lucky strikes were a dollar a carton, and the drafts were 10 and they used to buy you back one every third or fourth one. So you get a lot of mileage out of $78. Wow. I don't think anybody could do anything with $78 these days at all. But it did you justice, maybe not in the healthiest of ways, but it did you justice for a month. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're drinking. Really, to... Go ahead, dear. That's all you had to buy, really. Food, food, and everything else was provided. <laughs> but then I got into this. Uh, I started to uh, get interested in playing poker, and then all of a sudden, the, the seventy-eight dollars didn't seem to go anywhere. And I was uh... begging my mother to send me money all the time, and <laughs> she would she would only send me five dollars at a time, and not do that very often. Oh my goodness, five dollars! You know, and I'm just thinking it's 2015. You know, I'm, the numbers are still kind of digesting in my head. Like, who can do anything with five dollars? Right? Who can do okay. anything? <laughs> it gets you five cartons of Lucky Strike. Yeah, and I guess not, you you were not, using that for poker. Not packs, cartons. Cartons. Oh, yeah. Wow. 
Wow. So, okay, back then, how much, how, how many cigarettes were you, you doing a pack a day? Oh, probably not. No, I never was. Unless, yeah, I would say probably that. Okay, were you using for your poker habit, though? Well, I, I didn't have much of a habit. I just lose my money and then I couldn't play anymore. Couldn't play anymore. So was, okay. Uh, so, I mean, today in 2015, you know, would you say you're a good poker player or just that? Uh, I, 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 no, I'm pretty good now because I, for <laughs> quite a few years, I used to play a lot of poker tournaments. I actually played quite a few, um, tournaments, uh, all over the country. Okay. So I okay. haven't played much lately, but I, it was, it was a, uh, added vocational interest of mine for quite a while. Okay, so today it wouldn't be a situation where you would have to call mom for five dollars. You could probably handle your own <laughs> <laughs> right about now, right? <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, you're 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 playing poker, you're drinking, you're smoking. You're a year, two years into the Navy. Are you liking it? Is it for you? I mean, is it working for Dean or no? No. No. I had a <laughs> no. Countdown calendar. They. they uh, they, they call them countdown calendars. Everybody, they'd have uh, 340 days to go, 410 days to go. So I had about 650 days on my countdown calendar. I was really getting sick of it as a whole Navy thing. So I, I had asthma when I was a kid, and I kind of played that up, and I was able to get a medical, di- uh, honorable but medical discharge after about two years, a little over two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that. I, I wound up in Bethesda, Maryland Hospital for about two months. And, uh, well, they evaluated my case and worked the shit out of me on, uh, oh, excuse me, but worked me on, uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah, well, you know, we're syndicated, Dean. We can't really say some words on the, so we have sorry. to no, clean that one up. Clean that one up. Okay. Okay. I had to really grab this around to the morgue and a whole other variety of things. So finally I was able to convince them about the asthma and I got out. Okay. Now, I mean, you're, you're in the Navy, you're, you're making some money, you're able to drink and smoke and do, I mean, what, what is it, what is it that you're not liking? People telling you what to do. You know, you still had to be a certain place at a certain time and they were very serious about that. You know, if you, <laughs> you didn't show up when you were supposed to, big, big trouble. <laughs> oh yeah, that is right. Cause you did say, you know, back when you were, Hanging out, out of that, you were coming in and out the house at your own will, and you coming and going when you wanted to. So you were probably still in that mindset. Okay, so that makes sense to me. You didn't want anybody telling you when you could do something, where you could go, and all of that stuff. Okay, all right, I get it now. So we're we're getting the medical discharge. Um, you're you're in Maryland. You said you get your medical discharge, and I'm assuming, Dean, at this time, what you're 20 now, you still have no no game plan, right? Well, I did have a game plan. So okay. somehow military time counts towards unemployment. So as soon as I got out, I was able to get $34 a week unemployment. And that was, and it gave me the same, about the same juice as the $78 a month did uh, mm-hmm. at the subsidized uh, enlisted man's club. So I was able to um, drink all night and sleep all day. <laughs> so that was the plan. For, for the unemployment. <laughs> Like I like I said, Dean, you didn't really have a plan. <laughs> Not much. No. Okay, you know, but you get your unemployment, so you're drinking all day. I mean, you're drinking all night. You're sleeping all day, and that lasts you for how long? I think it was almost a year till the checks ran out, and and I had been um, considering 
the fact that I've probably got to do something with the rest of my life. So I had been, I, the one thing I liked about the Navy was working on airplane engines. So I signed up for Peterborough School of Aeronautics in Peterborough, New Jersey. And my parents were very happy to subsidize that. It was like a $50 a month or $70 a month. And I was fortunate enough, as soon as I signed up, they were looking for work, they were looking for workers at the Atlantic Aviation, which was right next door to the school. Mm-hmm. So I got this full-time, I got this full-time job and signed up at the school virtually the same day. And I made, uh, $50 a week for working 40 hours at Atlantic Aviation. And then, um, I went to school during the day and I had the 3.30 till 12 shift at Atlantic. Okay, so, so it was it was really good for me because I I, I wasn't yeah, I didn't have a lot of time to be out spending money or you know drinking and everything. Yeah, that's and, what I was uh, thinking. I, I I paid attention to what was going on in this school and I was able to uh, get a um, federal aviation power plant license. And uh, I took a job with Pan American Airways. Pan Am, we flew those there. over to Japan yeah. back in the days. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That was a while ago. Uh-huh. And I worked, I stayed there for about four months, and uh, it was so much like the Navy. They, they, <laughs> I just didn't like it. So my father was in my father was in the steel wool dye business, and at that point, my mother talked him into uh, let let me work there. It was just him and her. They had they were doing about twenty thousand dollars a year that year, mm-hmm. and uh, my father and I never really got along very. Very well, anyway, so it was quite a, looking back at it, it was quite a scene. But I worked good with my hands, and I did learn how to make steel wool dyes quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I started to get interest in the business scene because I was exposed to, we serviced other manufacturing companies. And I started to deliver dyes, and I got into conversations with other people in business. And a couple of those people were, like, really helpful mentors and and turning my head around to think about the future and think about business and and making more than, you know, $50 a week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So you're now working with your, your dad. I mean, and, and I can just only imagine. But w- when you started <laughs> when you started working with your parents, what, what job did you have to, when you started working? And what would you do? Oh, uh, well, a steel rule die is a very, very similar to a cookie cutter. You make okay. a, you take a board, you draw a picture of what you want to uh, make, and then you cut that out on a jigsaw, and then you bend sharp steel and put it into that, and then you run it on a press. It's like a, uh, like a printing press. Okay, okay, and and your parents were, I wouldn't say extremely successful, but they they got by doing this. Um, that was their, their income yeah, oh, yeah. for. They were. $20,000 in those days was, you know, you could live pretty well on it. I mean, they weren't doing, they didn't keep all of that, but they're, they're you know, there's five or six thousand bucks. You could have, you could have a normal life. Okay. And, okay. Uh, but then we started to build the sales up. Then I got interested in, and uh, I got interested in it. And then I started getting new customers and we started to, uh, seven or eight years later, we started, we hired, we hired somebody. We had the sales were going up and we had new customer base. And then um, uh, about 15 years after that point, my father and mother both retired. And I, I had been uh, evolved the business into doing a lot of different kind of fabricating using the die cutting process. We had uh, a couple of die cutting presses. And uh, 
So we were, I was doing all right. I was making a decent living, and I had been married for, I got married in 61, so, I mean, that was a, that was a, a whole other scene, but. Um, yeah, we I want to talk about that one life. in a minute. <laughs> talk about that one. Well, uh, <laughs> two, stu- two stupid kids raising stupid kids, you know, it was <laughs> frightening. It was hard on my kids and hard on us. <laughs> you know, and you, you, let's talk about this. We're going to have to break soon, but you, you got married in 1961, and let's say you got married the first time in 1961. Um, yeah. And and you said that you weren't prepared for it. I mean, and, and honestly, let's be fair, I, uh, 95 of us are not prepared for marriage when we walk into it, but you really felt you were not prepared for it. Why so? Oh, it was at that age. I, I You know, I was just, it just it, every every part of it really wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for, um, and it's just total immaturity. You know, I was yeah. mostly about twelve years old at that point, and and we we loved each other, and mm-hmm. we raised two, we raised two kids together. Mm-hmm. And how long were you guys married? Eighteen years. Okay, okay. Well, you did something right then. I mean, you did eighteen years. Yeah. You know. One of, yeah, know. we we had some we had a lot of good times too. <laughs> it was it was it was it was it was just uh, vinegar and oil, two different okay. personality types, and try as we will, it wasn't tested. Okay, okay, but like I said, you know, we we did the eighteen years. We've got the two kids, and she was there for you to um, see. You know, to get your feet wet and, and getting your parents' business rocking and rolling, which uh, eventually became a foundation for what you would uh, spring off and do on your own. And we're going to get into that next. But first, we got to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Hello and welcome back. Today I'm speaking with the author of I'll Fix My Head Before I'm Dead, Mr. Dean Roberts. And we were talking about uh, his colorful life that he has had. Uh, right before the break we were talking about his first marriage that he had in 1961 for 18 years. And um, <clears throat> the, the um, sorry, went blank right there. And his uh, help, helping his parents uh, get their business, uh, to take it to the next level. Now, you said your parents retired after 15 years. So did you take on the business by yourself completely at that time, or did the business just close? Yep, that's Okay. Yep, that's right. Okay. So then and, I guess what I'm trying to figure out oh, – well, go ahead real quick. You say that, and then maybe that will answer my question. Uh, right, right around that same time, the character of the business changed completely. We had been subcontractors for other manufacturers uh, creating – uh, component for their product line. And, uh, we had at, at that point started making bird houses and bird feeders and little planters die cut out of plywood. Okay. And a friend of mine designed a dollhouse and he sent me the drawings for it and I kind of ignored it for a while but one of the guys in the shop made a sample on it and we, uh, everybody got all excited. Oh great, dollhouses. And I went to a trade show. And, and that's when the business really took off. At that point, we were probably doing $100,000, $125,000 a year. And uh, within five years, we were doing almost $4 million. And wow. we were making a whole variety, whole variety of different kind of dollhouses, and we were shipping them out. 
I was doing trade shows in Tokyo and Milan and London and uh, uh, Frankfurt, Germany. And we were exporting them all over the world and selling them all over the United States. We sold Woolworths and we sold Toys R Us and uh, a lot of other Michaels and uh, a lot of other chains. Okay. Well, help me get some clarity here because I was reading through your book and I'm just trying to figure out the transition between your parents' business and because there's a part in your book where it talks about your grandfather made a call to you and said that there was a location by him that was available for sale. So you're still, what you just yeah. told me now, you're still talking about your parents' business or was this your own stuff that you had, you know, merged into? When we, uh, at, when my, I got that call from my uncle about the building being available, I moved from Brooklyn and right at that same point, uh, my parents retired. Okay. What's this okay. building? And we weren't making any sort of, oh, this, this transition from one dollhouse to 12 different styles and $4 million in sales all took place, um, upstate New York. Okay. Where, uh, where, right where I live today, actually. Okay. Now, Okay, I like the story because, like I said, I did read the book. So I like the story of, you know, you get the call from your uncle and he says, yeah, you know, there's a property and it's the whole fairy tale kind of experience. I don't have the money. I can't barely get up there. But, you know, just explain to the audience, um, if you can, how that that whole situation plays out there where you get your start. Well, um, my wife's sister had uh uh, she was a uh, bachelorette, and she had saved some money. So she loaned us some money to uh, buy this building for $1,000 and to buy a truck and to make this transition from Brooklyn to uh, Skenevis, New York. And it was I, – I, every I bought this old broken-down truck for $700, <laughs> and every single trip I had to fight some kind of a demon down. And uh, But then when I got there – it was like uh, it was just like a whole new world, you know. I mm-hmm. had always wanted to live there because I spent my summers there, mm-hmm. and it brought out the really creative. Well, you know, I got to step back one minute though and talk about a, ch- a change that started to enable all these other changes. Okay. Somewhere in the mid '60s, when um, I was I was overweight, I was unhealthy, uh, very unhealthy. I was smoking and drinking, and I was sort of moving ahead in business, but I wasn't. I, I was really not anywhere near the possibility of what I could have been doing. So I, I was, I really got one night that I can think of that, that um, I, I had chronic bronchitis pretty bad and I had, I couldn't even lay down to sleep and mm-hmm. I was sleeping in a chair and I woke up in the middle of the night and I uh, took a meta, took a couple of tooths on this metahaler for my asthma because I was at that point I was having quite a lot of trouble with asthma too. Mm-hmm. And then I lit up a cigarette and I was sitting there, and it just, the, the absolute complete absurdity of my life, all of a sudden, appeared to me. Thank, yeah, thank him. Thank, him, thank her. Thank, thank everybody. I'm taking a puff out my inhaler, and then I'm like, okay, here's a cigarette. Yeah. Not, not an uncommon behavior for me, though. I was doing that, I was doing that, uh, for quite a while. And then I, I, I just stopped. I stopped smoking, I stopped drinking, and I, not permanently, but, for a period of time anyway. Mm-hmm. And I started to read about diet and I started to eat better and exercise. And then uh, somehow I came on the, uh, uh, the book by Marcus Aurelius, his meditation. 
And it was truly a catharsis for me because I, I knew, I started to realize there's a way that I didn't have to be depressed and angry all the time. I didn't have to be like running around half crazy, even though I couldn't do it. Just reading about somebody that had done it and his, all of his inspirational reminders as to, he's, he's talking to himself every day. He's telling himself, well, I don't, you know, all these points about the, uh, taking control of your life and don't be mm-hmm. reactive, be creative. And from that study process, I got into the habit of every day reading and studying that his work and other books. Thinking Grow Rich was another book that was really, uh, really uh, important to my growth. And then I got into this habit. Every morning I would spend time with uh, uh, meditations by Marcus Aurelius, Thinking Grow Rich, and a couple other books. And so that was a, a preamble to this move and this business out this outburst of business creativity that there is i got I, what happened was i got a little bit of control of my life you know okay okay it makes sense you know and when you you know you start to make certain positive changes in your life other pieces of the puzzle you know start to fall into place and so you know then your opportunity comes there to you know you said you'd always envision living out there you know by where your grandfather was uh, and you got this call from your uncle hey this place is available i don't have the money but okay here here's an opportunity i'm going to you know you get the money um and then you know you got to move all your equipment up there and 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 people have to read the book because that whole little situation was so comical i mean you can just picture (laughs) when when you read it you're like oh this poor man if this truck breaks down one more time I left out a whole lot of very, very ridiculous details for that move. That happened over a period of about five weeks, and it was, it was absolutely bizarre. I think it might be another book someday. <laughs> Too funny. But you're out there, and and the the uh, epiphany of that whole little scene is you're there, and you're like, this, this is, I, I feel, this is it. This, I, you, I think you said you have never felt. Um, more something at, at, than at that particular time. I mean, that that was a very important moment for you in your life to actually be there. Oh, that that first night when I had when I landed there and I I walked around the old creamery. It didn't even have very much electricity. There was just lights mm-hmm. in one part of the building. Um, I, I it was like I had walked on a mystical carpet or something because mm-hmm. I had this great sense of destiny and, and the feeling that I can make something of this. I can mm-hmm. I can transform. Mm-hmm. My whole, I can build a wall around my family so that we can have the financial independence of, of uh, what you get from financial independence. There you go. Awesome, awesome. So the uh, the kids are young at this time, or are they grown? Or well, they're they're teenagers at that. Time. Oh, they're teenagers. Okay, okay, and. and Everybody was supportive and, you know, ready to go. I mean, comes you know, teenagers, I don't want to leave my friends and, you know, I want to be in Brooklyn, you know, so. Well, they lived in, we lived in Carteret, New Jersey, and they were, there was a, there was an element of that, but they, they liked it up there because we always vacationed up there as a family. I was really um, attached to that area. To, and I had a lot of family there. We still have, every year we have a family reunion at my house and there's 30 to 50 people there every year. Okay. Uh, so it, they were kind of a part of that community, so they weren't moving to absolutely into a, you know, a totally a new strange situation. place. Okay, okay. So does but business they, like know, they, take... Go ahead. Well, you know, they're kids, and they they miss their friends, and then, but their yeah. friends came up, and it, they, they got used to it. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, teenagers can be a little difficult, as you know from your own teenage period. And, and, I, and, and I, would, I guess I should ask you, though, your teenagers never gave you any of the problems you gave your parents, right? Oh, they were angels. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they were actually angels. To <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not not as bad as you were, though, right? No, nothing like that. Okay. Okay. Thanks, so, guys. so you had already it's established. One, Go ahead. There's one comment that I have to tell you. My, one of my mother's favorite lines was, "I can't wait till you have kids of your own." <laughs> and then when they were given, and my mother lived right across the street from my from our family when we moved up to Scanevis. And I can't tell you how many times when my son was giving me a pain in the neck that she would say, I told you, <laughs> I can't wait. It's too bad. It all comes around. It all comes around. I think all yeah. parents wait, wait for their grandkids to be born so they can just sit back in the chair and laugh at us, you know, struggle through the whole process. <laughs> right. So you had mentioned, you know, already had a lot of this stuff established, you know, from working with your parents. So I'm going to assume that when you moved into the creamery out there that you pretty much took off and excelled. There was no bumps and bruises in your business, right? You were ready to rock and roll as soon as you got everything up and, and going? I was ready, but there were plenty of bumps and bruises. You know, that when you're, when you're, when you're like a knee-jerk reaction and you just run off in four directions at one time, it's hard to ever live without bumps and bruises. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, but it worked. You know, this whole this concept of the dollhouses really came together, and I was very lucky to attract intelligent uh, uh, people that knew what they were doing. And uh, if it wasn't for the, if it wasn't for my second wife and my first wife and uh, a lot of the really great people that came to work at Greenleaf, uh, there was nothing much would ever happen. Gotcha. So you, the, na- the name of the company you just mentioned it was Greenleaf. Now, is that all that Greenleaf did was Dollhouse? Well, for no, we still made custom components for other manufacturers, but it was a small uh, my, it was a small fraction of the sales. Mostly, okay. it was Dollhouses and Dollhouses. This was this what happened, and it was a very it, it was good. The good fortune was also that. We connected with a couple of mass merchants, and there was a, uh, a uh, there was a uh, interest in it. It's like model mail, model railroading for women. They were <laughs> miniature shops all over the country. There were several thousand of them, and we sold most of them. I had five people on the phone calling calling every every shop in uh, in the country every couple of weeks to uh, tell them about a new sale or tell them about a new dollhouse or offer some sort of special deal. You know that it was a uh, and. So it worked out. Okay. How many employees did you have at at, at the peak of operation? I, I, it was over fifty at one okay. point. We had uh, uh, we were running three shifts, so it was a small, well, relatively small. I had built a couple of buildings after we after I bought the creamery, but it was still pretty tight. But we worked on shifts. We had three three shifts going. Okay. So okay. Through. Quite quite a transition from the 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 guy who used to uh, or the young kid who used to just hang around at the uh, drugstore drinking uh, beer and, and uh, <laughs> Lucky's. Uh, <laughs> quite a difference. Right. Yeah. One hundred and eighty degree turnaround. I like that. I like well, that. It's it's got to, it's got to do with study. You need to anybody that's not where they want to be needs to study. They need to acquire skills. 
and they have to be motivated enough to use this, the knowledge and the skills that they can acquire because the opportunities are bound. There's things you can do anywhere, paint houses, pick up cans. I mean, there's something any, anybody can do if they've got sufficient motivation. And I was I, just by the hand of God again that I was able to see that and to uh, increase my, you know, Ayn Rand had a very uh, a quote that I really think applies to what happened to me. Live to the limit of your knowledge and expand your knowledge to the limit of your life. And I've really tried to do that. I mean, I spend an hour every morning right now studying different things. I like that. I like that. So you study, you acquire skills, and the opportunities will come. And I, I, I really oh, like opportunities, that. Oh, the opportunities are there. There's opportunity uh, all over, everywhere, for the person that's ready for it, that has the skills and the knowledge to actualize and the, and the motivation. That's, motivation is probably the top of that. You can get by with a lot less skill and a lot less knowledge if you really got a fire in your belly, you know? That's it, the fire in the belly. Well, Dean, we're going to take a quick uh, last commercial of the day. We'll be right back and talk a little bit more about the book. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello. Today I am spending some time with Mr. Dean Roberts. He is the author of the book, I'll Fix My Head Before I'm Dead. And uh, I want to make sure I read on the back cover of, the, of his book. There's something that I really, really like, and I want to share it with everybody. And he says there's two concepts that he feels quite certain about. One, that you should study, exercise, meditate, and write every day. Two, is each instant offers an opportunity to improve things by either thought or deed. And um, I think those are very two powerful statements. And, um, you know, that's um, some very important ways that people can improve things in their lives. A lot of times that we get so overwhelmed with things that, you know, we don't understand. It's the smallest of things that we can do to just make changes in our life. And I think, um, you know, you took the long road to get there, but hopefully some of your experiences and some of the things in your book that, People can make some changes a little quicker than you had to knock your head up against the wall a few times to, to get. Thank you, Lana, because yes. I, do tru- I do truly feel if someone will just really work on understanding those two points. I, uh, for example, uh, anything, there's something you can do anytime, even if it's just send love to somebody you might have had an argument with or mm-hmm. to somebody that's far off or uh, pick up some paper in, a, in a, on the street or pick, uh, clean up the, uh, the counter in a, to- a public toilet when you leave. Always look around and see what can I contribute to my world, my life, my thoughts that will make things better, make things more uh, wholesome. And and, uh, and it, I try to do that. You know, especially especially works when you had some sort of a surprise or some sort of a trauma, or you know, you spill the, you, you spill the milk or do something. Uh, that you may throw you off balance. Mm-hmm. Turn around. What can I do right now to make this situation, my thoughts, this life, this world a better place? There you go. There you don't get so consumed with the negative moment. Try to turn it into something more positive. You know, you you have control over how things are going to go. And you know, I think a lot of people assumes, uh, assume, excuse me, assume that you know they have no responsibility, no opportunity to change the outcome of their. You know the the flow of their day. You know, so um, I, I really like that. Well, Lana, I don't think that's exactly right. I think that a lot of us are almost like robots. 
Okay. We really don't have that control. That control is a power that we can learn. It's mm-hmm. a skill like, it's an ability like running a four-minute mile. You can never run a four-minute mile if you ran a six-minute mile or an eight-minute mile. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's a dynamic skill that you need to not only learn it, you need to use it. Mm-hmm. It's like lifting weights or anything. It'll go away if you don't implement it. If you don't every day choose to discipline yourself and to choose good thoughts. Uh, it's So that's what Marcus Aurelius' book did for me. It opened the, the door of possibility. I said, I don't have to live like this. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to be depressed. I can train myself. And then I've worked at finding out ways to do that. I went to meditation, meditation retreats, and I had four different shrinks that I've probably talked to for a thousand hours. <laughs> and I, you know, it, it it was a long. It's not something you can do overnight, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. But it takes commitment, and it takes and it takes a plan. You got to have a plan. And and like you, it's something that you have committed to every day. Like you said, every day you you study, you exercise, and you meditate. This is this is something that you have committed to, on a um, you know, like brushing your teeth or whatever. It, it is a part of your daily routine now. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I've reached a point in my life that I want to keep, and I, if mm-hmm. I can make it better, that's great. But I don't. I just don't want to start backsliding into. Uh, uh, anger and depression and, uh, because you know, you don't kill those demons. Mm-hmm. I really don't think you can totally free yourself from them, but you can learn to live with them and you can't kill them, but you can train them. Just <laughs> 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 stay the hell out of your life. You know? <laughs> so you look, okay, you go sit over there in that corner and I only want to see you maybe, you know, for three minutes a day if possible. I'll let you come out and play for three minutes and I really don't want you to come out and play those three minutes, but. <laughs> Okay. Keep your mouth shut. There you go. <laughs> that's a very good symbol. I, I, I created a whole lot of cartoons I want to draw someday, and that's definitely going to be one of them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Too funny. So the kids, uh, the two kids, they've now taken over the business? Yep. Okay. They, uh, I spoke to them this morning. Things are the, the whole craft industry in the United States has gone the, – both miniatures and crafts has gone way downhill because of uh, the screens. Everybody's got a screen in their pocket and a screen in their car, and they're always looking and, uh, you know, uh, uh, playing games and talking to people mm-hmm. and emailing and reading. So the, the, that whole industry has gone down. But the, the business is really a dominant position in the, in the dollhouse kit business. We sell to um, Amazon and Target and a whole variety of uh, overstock and a lot of other internet uh, marketing companies. So it's a, it's much smaller than it was, but it's still doing it's still supporting the family. Okay. And it's more profitable because we're selling now uh, retail. You know, we, you can go to the Greenleaf Dollhouse website and order all kinds of shingles and dollhouses and a whole variety of uh, of accessories that go with that. So okay. less business, more profit. Got you. I mean, anytime with online, it, it decreases a lot of the overhead, so there's there's room for more profit. Do you think the uh, yep. kids will maybe kind of migrate into some other areas of business, or will they stick with the dollhouses? I think it's always possible. My grandson is now 30, and he's been working there for 10 years, and I think he's got some interest in different products and um and that's what I want to do when we get back. I'm gonna we're gonna get back home in a couple of months, and I want to spend some time there and try to. Uh, I've been looking at some different ideas as we travel, and 
try to maybe work up some other product lines because in a multi in a fifteen trillion dollar economy, there's always things you can make. That's true. That is true. That's true. Now you mentioned quite a few times that you're kind of out there on the road. How long have you been uh, out there traveling? We left January first of this year. Yep. And okay, we'll but you've been you've the, been the end of March. Okay, but you've been in a truck and a camper roaming across the country for quite some time, though, right? Well, I did for uh, uh, when I those journal entries that I put in the book were in the early '90s. I spent two years pretty much living in a um, uh, a fifth wheel trailer, but then when I got married for the third time, we settled down on on my my grandfather's farm. Actually, is where we live now. We have. Uh, workshop and we have chickens and we have goats and we have uh but during that whole 10 year period i pretty much just um read studied played way 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 too much internet poker <laughs> and took care of the chickens and um it was kind of almost a loss but we had a, it was great we were growing all our own food we froze our we froze most of what we you know we ate all winter and okay. we traveled a little bit but not not as much as i had either one of us had oh, okay. the previous time Okay, see, I thought you were still out there roaming the roads like in the 90s, but this is a new trip that you guys uh, started in January. Just recently you guys went yeah. back out there. Okay, I see. Now, real quick, um, the title of your book, I'll Fix My Head Before I'm Dead, you know, it's humorously intriguing. I mean, how did you come up with that? I don't know. It's just, it's just <laughs> I've, I've been writing, like I said, I've been writing in journals uh, every, uh, just about every morning since the mid-70s. And... Uh, I was just writing about something, and, and that just came up. And then I started to think about, well, okay, that's not a bad idea because I, that's been the thrust. And I kind of referred to that over and over again throughout the years. Every morning, in addition to my regular reading, I read a couple of journals. Like I'm on one from 89 and one from uh, 84 or something like that mm-hmm. um, as a part of my morning reading because it's – it's really good to reflect on change and how you've changed and how your perspective has changed. And it really is an aid to that because I see some of the ridiculous things I was <laughs> thinking about doing or writing. It's, yeah. And it's funny too. I do, I get a lot of laughs when I read that because, and I mean, and then, you know, I got all these morning resolves and then I get the next morning I start out by talking about how I totally went absolutely nuts, ran around in circles and got absolutely done, nothing done the day before that day <laughs> after all this high wisdom in the morning. Uh, quite a lot of laughs out of that. Too funny. Too I think it's an important part of uh, of self development is to write about it. Yeah, it's it's always served me a lot of just sit down and write some things, and then I can I have the opportunity to go back and reflect, um, you know, on my growth over the years, even sometimes in a week span, you know. So it's it's wonderful. Right, a week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dean, you know what? Our hour is up. I I'm always so I just I can never get it all in. It seems in this one little bit of time, but I have truly enjoyed you. Uh, My guest today has been Mr. Dean Roberts. Please visit his website, BoneyardExpress dot blogspot.com pick up the book it's on Amazon right Dean it is it's available oh. on Amazon, Amazon Kindle and Nook as a uh, Kindle and Nook is a download it's $3 okay. there $7 on Amazon okay pick up the book uh, Dean I appreciate you so much for making time with me you've really uh, been a pleasure to talk to 
<laughs> Thank you. That's all. <laughs> That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There is always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.